Turn with me, if you will, to Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3, we'll be reading the last three verses of this prophet. Zephaniah 3, 18 through 20, found on the church Bible on page 1088. We've been looking at Zephaniah in the mornings here at Christ Church, but I, I didn't want one single sermon to sit until after my vacation, so I figured we'd just finish the book tonight. And uh, so we're looking at the last three verses here of Zephaniah. And, and as I said this morning, I, I really think kind of if you were looking at Zephaniah as if it were a, a book we were reading today... You would expect verses uh, 14 through 17 to be the, the finale. That would be the end. And then you would flip a page and have an epilogue. And that would be the verses we're looking at tonight. So the, the pinnacle is what we looked at this morning. Uh, the sweet song of salvation, the people of God's song to him, and his song about us. And then God gives this epilogue that talks to us in part about Israel's return from Babylonian captivity and in part points to things for us as well. So let's look at that this evening. Zephaniah 3, beginning in verse 18. This is the word of our God. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you to whom its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time I will deal with those who afflict you, all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where, uh, where they were put to shame. At that time I will bring you back, even at the time I gather you. For I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. And we pray, even as we have sung, that you would comfort us with these words, that you would give us humility and guide us in your way that we would have our hearts made straight instead of crooked for the glory of King Jesus. Lord, we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Well, if you uh, read uh, Zephaniah, uh, the first two-thirds is heavy. <laughs> it's dark in some ways. It, it, it is God's judgment. God's judgment against Everyone. The nations get theirs in chapter 2, but in chapters 1 and, and in the beginning of chapter 3, the visible church gets its. The visible church, the community of God's people uh, openly before the world, but not all of whom are true believers. And in Zephaniah's day, few of whom were true believers. Even when Josiah in those days led the greatest revival in the history of Israel, greater than anything David ever did or Samuel ever did, 
Even then, Josiah died and everyone proved their real colors. And the majority of the people went back to worshiping idols. So in his day, the, the visible church was not uh, filled with true believers. It was scattered believers among many hypocrites. And, and no doubt, as we read Zephaniah and some of the descriptions of the sins of God's people, it feels familiar. Uh, we are part of a greater body, which is the visible church. And... Some don't seem to have any concern for the gospel at all. Some don't seem to have any interest in morality at all. Some don't seem to have any interest in the Bible at all. It can feel pretty bleak. And when we think about God's judgments and his threatenings, a book like Zephaniah can be heavy upon us. Until, of course, we reach chapter 3, verse 8 and following, where God says, Remember, I have a remnant. I know those who are mine. I call them by name. I draw them out from the rest. On the day when the angels come to to gather the harvest and burn the chaff, I know who the weed are. And they won't get burned up. So from chapter 3 verse 8 through the end, God is encouraging his people in the midst of a a a quite oppressive and polluted, corrupt, visible church. We should be encouraged by that. And as we come to the last three verses, he repeats things he's already said earlier in the chapter. He repeats that he's bringing the people out of Babylon back to Jerusalem, and their shame will be removed. But just as we acknowledged when we were looking earlier in the chapter, the language he uses is far more extreme than can be really applied historically to the return from Babylon. Because what God often does through the prophets is gives a a prophecy that has an immediate application. I'm bringing you back from Babylon. And it has an eternal spiritual significance. I have redeemed you from sin, death, and hell. And so we can look at these verses, acknowledging that they speak of the return from Babylon, also knowing they say something to us. As we think of God's judgment coming upon a visible church that is not faithful to him, uh, we might ask, am am I one of the remnant? We, We struggle with assurance sometimes, don't we? Because we know that we aren't as faithful as we should be. And so I think as we look at these last three verses, I I want to consider what God says defines the remnant. How do you and I spot the remnant? God knows. He's not confused about your eternal state. But maybe sometimes you are. So what are some things that are pinpointed in the text that show us who the remnant is what the remnant's priorities are, and then looking at our God and his promises to us. So let's think about the remnant. Who are they? Two things in this passage. The first is that the remnant are those who sorrow within the visible church, 
Those who sorrow, to whom the the sins of the church in their day, whether that's apathy or false doctrine or moral sins, those to whom such things are a burden. That's an important word, burden. We see this in verse 18. God says, using the same language he used previously, in, uh, in verses 8 through 13, he talked about gathering together a remnant. And here he says, I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly. They sorrow over the appointed assembly. And that's the way of saying over the church and its worship. The appointed assembly was where the people came together to worship God as a corporate body. But we might even say the whole church that's visible because the appointed assembly often refers to specifically those feast days when all of Israel came to the temple at Jerusalem to worship. And so you might be from a small town in Benjamin where the local worship on Sunday is held by a a fairly faithful body of believers. And then you might, on the special feast days, go up to the appointed assembly and find money changers at the temple. Uh, And people engaged in all sorts of things that God had forbidden at the temple. And you would feel that while your local congregation, we might say, was worshiping God fairly faithfully, you as a part of Israel as a whole was not. And verse 18 is addressing that. God says he will gather those who sorrow over the visible church, the corporate body of those who claim to profess the name of the Lord. They sorrow over this. And the second line of that same verse expands on that a little further. They sorrow over the appointed assembly. Why? Well, many sorrowed because, oh, they're taking us to Babylon. Our glory is being taken away. Is, is that all that sorrowing over the appointed assembly is to mean? No, the second line helps us. Who are among you to whom its reproach is a burden. Now, you could say with that that the reproach is being taken to Babylon. But if you read Zephaniah 1 and 2, it's clear that the reproach God means is the reproach before him of breaking his law, breaking his covenant. It is the reproach of God for our sins that causes them to sorrow. These things are... These things are despised by God. And they are, they are the cause of a burden to the people. I, I wonder how often the, the apathy or the sin of the church at large is a burden to us. At the point in history in which we live, of course, you 
you have denominations, you have independent churches. And so it's very easy mentally to say, well, that, yeah, that's not us, though. Sure, they, they are wicked, but we're not. It's easy to disassociate, but the reality is all churches that have the name of Christ and church are to the world the example of what Christianity is. And so it it should be a burden to us when we hear of false teachers. Um, I think the most popular podcast at one point last year was uh, the one that was about a, a church and its corrupt leadership that led to all these people leaving Christianity. Of course the world ate that up. They loved it. A lot of disgruntled Christians ate that up. They loved it. Should be a burden to us. Not that some secret we were trying to hide from the world got out, but that that is how the world views the name of Christ. Is it a burden to us? It is the way that Hollywood jokes about Christianity something that makes you snicker a little? Or is it a burden? Do you think this is what people think of my king? God declares that his remnant can be spotted because they are those people who sorrow over the state of the church and the things going on in the church. And it is a burden to their hearts. And yet so often it's easy to get to a point where we say, live and let live. We'll agree to disagree on that. Well, okay, there are some doctrines it's, it's okay to say, well, you can believe either thing and not lose the gospel. We'll agree to fellowship despite our disagreements on X, Y, and Z. But I, I think we're far too quick to do that with things that the Bible doesn't leave open for discussion. And what does that say about our king before the world? He presents us with uh, our, our position here is to grieve. It's to be a heavy weight and a burden that the church looks like this. The, the, world, the world doesn't even notice Christ Church and Covenant Church for the most part, as you can see. So when, so when your neighbors hear that you're a Christian they are more likely to think of any number of churches out there than they are to think that this is what Christianity is for you. Now, part of that's a shame on us for lack of evangelism, perhaps, a lack of openness about our faith. Part of it's just the fact that for every church like Covenant Church or Christ Church, There are 50 churches with a rainbow on their sign. There are a dozen churches with a a pastor who's more interested in how he looks than with what he says. Or how many zeros are on his paycheck than with what God's word says. 
And that's what the world thinks of you. But more importantly, of Christ. That should be a burden. And it shouldn't be something that's easy for us to just shrug off. Simply because it's not true of me. Well, I know it's not true of me. I'm the person from, you know, the end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, who is seeking the Lord in repentance. But the church isn't all doing that, is it? It's a burden. So that's the first thing that marks out the remnant. Thankfully, that's not where it stops. But because there are a lot of people who don't actually care much about the gospel or the king, who are in churches and grieve over the loss of morality around us. They, they grieve in a sense without having true faith. The other thing that pinpoints the remnant then is that the remnant hopes in the covenant king. We grieve, but not without hope. We grieve, but not just gazing at our own navels or just drooping our heads down. We, we grieve, and then we turn our heads upward to hope in our king. Now, we see this in verses 19 and 20, where this word behold... Behold, at that time, I, I think that at that time can get in our way a little. Here, here just the verbs connected with behold. Behold, I will deal. I will save. I will gather. I will appoint. I will bring. I will gather. I will give. I will return your captive. It's an eightfold I from the king. In other words, the behold there is God saying, Look at me. Behold me. Behold your God. Yeah, look at the look at the church in your day and grieve. But then look at me. What am I going to do? What have I done? I, I, I. So the remnant don't only sorrow. They sorrow and turn to their hope. And they look to him. And they cry out to him. Now, what does their hope include? When they gaze up at their king, what does he promise? I think I can boil 19 and 20 down to three main things he's promising. First, he promises to deal with persecutors. I will deal with those who afflict you. Babylon, right? Obviously Babylon. And in a night... As they were celebrating, in fact, they were mocking God. The Babylonians were using the, the golden implements from the temple to get drunk. And the next morning, they were all dead. 
And there was Daniel serving the next king. Yeah, God, God dealt with the oppressors, literally, in that historic context, didn't he? And in his time, Darius came exactly the year that God claimed he would, exactly the man by exactly the name that God had said two generations earlier would do this, and he sent the people back to Israel. Astonishing. I, I will deal with them. But just as I said this morning, we we remember in the New Testament who are our enemies, what afflicts us. I was praying this last week because we, we might think of all the wrong things. We might think that our enemies are those who have a rainbow flag on their church. I'm not saying we should be having worship services with them or their brothers and sisters. I'm just saying we might think that's the enemy. But what's the enemy? It's sin, death, and hell. It's the same enemy that's, that's dragging other churches away from Christ and making them synagogues of Satan. But who is the enemy there? It's sin. And it's Satan. It's spiritual forces in the heavenly places and here on earth at war and we're stuck here seeing what that looks like in a very normal way in how the church looks today so as we remember that the real enemy is sin death and hell then we can rejoice in our king our king who has crushed all of these. Our King, who has crushed all our enemies. Who stands there in the book of Revelation and declares, I am He who lives. I was dead. And behold, I live forevermore. Amen. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. It it is this King who promises in Romans, that he will shortly crush Satan under your feet. You'll act as the heel of Christ the King and crush Satan's head. So we look to this King who promises to deal with our persecutors and he does deal with them. His Spirit works within us, convicting us of sin sanctifying us. And it's the same king who's going forth and convicting and convincing and converting others. And he's able. The church in America is a disgrace today. But King Jesus is the solution. Look at me, he says. I will deal with this. I'll deal with it in the right way. Second, we look at him who promises that he will save the broken. He'll save the broken. And here we read, I I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will save the lame. And, And we get hindsight, don't we? We see the heart of Christ very literally coming to the lame, 
to those who are physically broken. Saving their souls from sin, he can then still turn and also say, take up your bed and walk. He does the whole thing. We don't need a Savior for our souls and another Savior for our bodies. Your sins are forgiven. Take up your bed. Walk. We we need to remember that just as disabilities are an effect of the fall into sin, so we are all disabled by the fall into sin spiritually. Incapable. Dead. By ourselves. And the same king addresses both struggles, physical and spiritual. Romans 8 shows that his redemption will in the end be absolute, complete of the body, the soul, and creation itself. Romans 8 uses the same word for creation's redemption that Romans uses for your redemption. What is that going to look like? It's going to look amazing. It's going to be amazing. I have no idea what that's going to feel like in that day or look like. I can't imagine my body actually not having decay. And I can't imagine creation that has no decay. One king saves the lame. We are to look to him. And then third, we're to look to this king who will turn the situation on its head. Turn the situation on its head. That's, that's what we're seeing here as, as we read of those who are driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. They were mocked. Now they're going to be praised. They were derided. Now they're going to be looked up to. And he even uses the grammar of this to, to show this in 19 and 20. Because he says the same thing twice, but just flips the order of it in verse 20. To make sure that we see there's a, there's a turning around of things. Beloved, for the remnant of Jesus Christ... We are called to shame, scorn, and trials now. And glory then. He's going to turn it all around. And those who mock now, Zephaniah has gone out of his way to make very clear, those who mock now, will be the object of the king's scorn forever. And the visible church, which is the leadership, for example, are described as lions and wolves in chapter 3, as those who break the law and make worship polluted. 
that kind of visible church is going to be the object of his wrath. But those who suffer for Christ's sake now inherit the earth, gain all things, and will have all things with Christ, including including fame. We, we have to be careful thinking about that, right? We, we don't want the idea of fame to come to trip us up into sin. So what fame are we going to get? He, he says it here twice. Praise and fame. And then fame and praise. I want to think about that word fame for a moment. The ESV translates that as um, renown. And others as honor. But the most literal translation of that name, that fame or renown, would be, I will give them a name. I hope you see how all of those translations are appropriate because they they get to something. Renown. What's renown? Well, your name is lifted up. People see it. There's honor connected to it. Fame. Uh, typically, you don't have fame unless people know who you are. Your name. So, so all those translations are fine, but I think name is more helpful theologically for us. Because one day, there will be one name. And every tribe, tongue, nation, and people will bow down and confess that name and his lordship. And an astonishing thing about being a Christian is that we, we get to bear his name. It started as a, a mockery in the book of Acts. The people of the community in a certain city started calling them Christians. Little Christ's. And they said, okay, we're okay with that. I've been called worse. We get, to, we get to bear his name. And while that might be mockery here, it's flipped around in eternity, isn't it? We bear his name, we share with him in glory. When he absolutely fulfills his covenant to the uttermost at the consummation of all things. Because Zephaniah chapter 3, 19 and 20 are a paraphrase of Moses' description of God's covenant upon his people. Hear this, Deuteronomy 26, 19. God has declared that he will set you in praise, in a name... And honor high above all the nations he has made, and that you will be a people to the Lord your God as he promised. Zephaniah says, that promise is still out there. You're about to go to captivity and be mocked and scorned, but God's keeping his promise. One day the shame will be turned on its head, and it will be fame. As people know on the last day, 
whose name you bear. And he will say to some, well done, good and faithful servants, enter into my rest. So beloved, as we, as we think about where we stand in the broader church of our day, and assess our own hearts over our grief over sin, and turn our eyes to gaze on our great King. It strikes me that the place where grieving over the state of the church and trusting in our King, the place those two things intersect most powerfully, is in the prayer for revival. When, when we pray for revival, we're acknowledging the church isn't what it should be. I think we often think of revival as we're going to get a bunch of non-Christians into, into a room and convert them. But the very word revival it, at its roots isn't that. It's bringing back, bringing back what is dead. And when we look at the visible church of Christ in every age, it's never as vibrant as it should be. But we we pray for revival when we say, God, revive your church. Bring that back. And if that happens, the world's going to get dragged along in that adventure. Bring the church back to faithfulness. There was a a praise song when I was a little younger. It was never one of my favorites because it was very repetitive, but its main point was really good. It was, Lord, send revival. Start with me. That second clause is what we often forget about revival. Me. Me. Because we think we're what we should be. Or maybe we think our congregation, maybe a few more numbers would be good, but otherwise we're what we should be. We're just fine. And it's them out there that's the problem. But when we mourn over the state of the church, it starts with mourning over our own state and examining our own hearts. But when we pray for the revival of the church, we're not letting ourselves grovel in that grief. We're turning to the king and saying, you're the only one that can do anything about this. And you're the, you're the one that does stuff about this. So Lord, bring revival. I hope that's our prayer uh, for Franklin County. I, I've, I've had conversations. I, I had a conversation with... Uh, former pastor of Covenant Church not too long back about about where our own hearts were at when we thought about people joining our churches and how easy it is to just want the numbers and forget that the whole point of worshiping God is the worship of God and the whole point of the church is to be those who are redeemed and who are worshiping God. And so as, as we 
both of our churches are struggling, aren't we? It's not what we wish we saw. But what are we praying for? Are we praying for true revival of the true religion in Franklin County? Maybe our churches blow away in the wind. But that we would pray that the true church would remain. Whatever that looks like. Let let that be our prayer. Let's pray now.